and good evening or good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are on this spinning globe. Welcome to the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where, well, kind of anything can happen, including a Chinese space station uh, falling on your head. Look, I, I want to do something at the top of the show because tonight's show is going to be really, really interesting and it's going to take us far afield from space science. So let me get the the space part out of the way first. You will not be hit by the falling Chinese heavenly palace coming down sometime between tomorrow night during the show and maybe Monday morning after the show. Repeat, you will not be hit by pieces of the nine-ton Chinese um, spacecraft that was its first space station. There's been a lot of hype in the last several weeks that this thing is coming in, and oh, we don't know where it is, and it's between 43 North and 43 South. Let me, let me give you some facts. It's about the size of a school bus, a small school bus. It's made of very fragile stuff. The most resistant parts are the tanks that hold uh, high-pressure helium. Those will probably survive and clunk on the ground somewhere, like Skylab's helium tanks did many, many, many decades ago when Skylab came in over the western parts of Australia. But keep in mind, most of this planet is ocean. The latitude between which this thing will enter is somewhere between 43 north and 43 south, the inclination of the orbit to the equator of the planet. So no, you will not get hit. Now, if you really are interested in this stuff, there's an online tracker. You can go to the space.com story that we have up there to see where the Chinese space station Tiangong number one may fall. If you're really, really lucky, you'll see it as a series of very interesting bright meteors going across the sky laterally, either north of you or south of you, depending upon where you are and depending upon where it's re-entering. Um, the odds favor a smidge, maybe China and the Soviet Union slash Russia because they're bigger. And the oceans, of course, are most favored because they're biggest of all. So do not get wigged out. Do not get bent out of shape. Do not do anything but appreciate the idea that um, something historic, which should have been preserved, the first Chinese space station should be preserved, but it looks like the Chinese don't care any more about history than folks in this country most of the time do. So they're letting this thing re-enter. There's no way they can control it. It's tumbling slowly. <clears throat> it's in a regular shape, which makes the aerodynamics kind of impossible, even with supercomputers, to predict where the final you know, torque or twist or frontal piece is exposed to the air and when it really begins to re-enter uh, for real. So enjoy the show. And if it re-enters tonight, we'll talk about it briefly tomorrow night. And if it doesn't enter until Monday or so, we'll talk about it next weekend. Okay, that's out of the way. My second item is really intriguing apropos of tonight's show. Sometime this week, Pope Francis gave an interview. I don't remember exactly who the interview was given to, but in the interview, remember the head of the Roman Catholic Church with over a billion, you know, Catholics following him, who believe devoutly that in faith and morals, the Pope is infallible. I don't think that's been repealed yet. Anyway, he said during this interview that um, hell doesn't exist. Is that a big sigh of relief I hear out there from all over the planet? Big sigh? 
The head of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis, has said officially, as part of his office, that hell does not exist. You know, we probably should do a show on this, or maybe we'll just ask uh, Father Tissot tomorrow night, who's there in, in uh, Italy. I think he's actually in Rome, although I may not be too sure about that last part. Um, anyway, um, we'll ask him, because this is, I mean, this is a major, 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 how many majors can I put on this change? Which, of course, leads us into the subject of tonight's conversation, which was suggested, by the way, by John Francis, who was one of our regulars. I, I really appreciate John, who's been of inestimable value to the show. He's made exquisite recommendations for guests. He knows how to really dig in obscure stories, particularly those stories involving the Navy and the Far East and those repeated collisions and all that. That's, of course, his naval background. And tomorrow night, John's going to be on the show with Father Tiso, and we're going to be talking about something that is kind of connected to tonight. So let me, let me give you the backstory and how we set this up tonight. John wrote to me a couple of weeks ago, and he said, what do you want to do for Easter weekend? And I said, um, I don't know. He said, why don't you think of doing something on, on resurrection? And I thought, oh, how cool. We could do a whole resurrection weekend. So tonight's part one of Resurrection Weekend is with uh, Barry Schwartz, who is a very interesting individual. I mean, the more you look at his background, the more interesting it gets. And one of the most interesting things he got himself involved with, and we're going to find out exactly how, is with validating the science, looking at the potential origins of one of the most remarkable artifacts, if not religious artifacts, in modern history. When I say modern, remember, we're coming from a perspective of millions and millions of years. I mean, in the last, you know, couple thousand years, just yesterday. What in the world is the Shroud of Turin? And how did it form? And how was it formed? And why did the idea take, take hold that it, in fact, may have been the burial shroud of Christ when he was crucified almost 2,000 years ago? Actually, it's probably now if the calendar is what I think it is slightly over 2,000 years, but uh, who's, who's quibbling? We're going to get to answer all those questions tonight. At least we're going to pose the, the, the questions. Maybe the answers are not there. We're going to find out. So without further ado, let me begin by introducing formally my guest of the evening. Barry Schwartz was the official documenting photographer for the Shroud of Turin Research Project the team that conducted the first in-depth scientific examination at the behest of the Vatican in 1978 of the Shroud of Turin. Today, Barry plays an influential role in the Shroud research and education that's continuing as the editor and founder of the internationally recognized Shroud of Turin website, www.shroud.com, the oldest, largest, and most extensive Shroud resource on the Internet with something like 15 million visitors from over 160 countries. Now, in 2009, Barry founded the Shroud of Turin Education and Research Association, S-T-E-R-A, Inc., which is a nonprofit 501c3 corp., to which he has donated the website and his extensive Shroud photographic collection. We're going to hear in great detail how those photographs were acquired, as well as many other important Shroud resources in order to preserve and maintain these materials and make them available for future research and study. 
Barry currently serves as the president of Stera, and he lives in um, Colorado, high in the mountains, something like 8,500 feet. And so the only way we could reach him is not through good old Skype. He is on a phone line. So without further ado, Mr. Barry Schwartz. Barry, welcome to the other side of midnight. Thank you, Richard. Great to be with you. Okay, given that that bio is totally the bio I would never, ever, ever put out for anybody, including myself, because it's completely missing who Barry Schwartz is, let's reel those years backward. Let's give people a perspective on who you are and what you, how you came to be in this place tonight by way of the Shroud. Um, where did you grow up? Well, I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ah. Uh, but left there the day after high school and uh, spent four years in the U.S. Navy. So you mentioned Navy in the intro uh, or in the earlier part of the show. And uh, so I'm a Navy guy myself. Um, I'm a graduate of Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara, California, which the GI Bill kindly paid my way through. And uh, some years after I graduated, I actually went back and was on faculty there for about 10 years. So uh, I lived in Santa Barbara, and I operated a photographic studio in Santa Barbara. And so that was sort of basis in the beginning of who I am. And, you know, I hate to make one correction, but I need to make a correction to something you said in the intro. And that is you said that at the behest of the Vatican, our team went to examine the shroud. And unfortunately, that's not correct. In 1978, the Shroud was still owned by the Savoy family, the monarchy of Italy. They'd owned it for almost 600 years, and it was King Umberto II who gave us the permission to examine the cloth. The Shroud had been held in the church, uh, St. John the Baptist Cathedral in Turin, Italy, for hundreds of years, but the church was solely the custodians and not the owners. So when the king said, Yes, I'm authorizing you to examine it. The church had to go along with it, but I must admit they were not thrilled. Hmm. So I want, sorry to correct you. No, 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 no. Believe me, that's all the interstitial detail we need to know, which is why you're on the show. Because, you know, to me, you know, being a Roman Catholic in, uh, in you know, fallen away status, from way, way back when reading my catechism, I realized at an early age of the Vatican, you know, takes control or possession of almost everything. So it, to me, it was an assumption that it was under their ages that this was done. But I'm glad you pointed out that, in fact, this is only in their care, not in their ownership, which is, I mean, is that a big or a small point? I don't think it's a major point, but I think it's, to be honest and accurate about it, uh, when because often people say, well, the church gave you permission to examine the shroud. Well, it really wasn't the church. And I have to admit, as I said, I don't think that had been up to the church that we would have gotten that permission um, just because their policy is generally not to allow those kinds of things to happen. So uh, they were not thrilled about it, but because the, they respected the king and his ownership going back five and a half centuries uh, in his family, they allowed us to do the examination. Hmm. Uh, the scientists and researchers that were in Turin, who were from Turin, weren't thrilled to have a bunch of guys from Los Alamos and Sandia and the Jet Propulsion Lab showing up on their doorstep to examine the shroud, which had sort of been their baby for all those years. And look, I understand that. It, uh, you know, it can be rather intimidating and maybe uh, the feeling that we were coming to sort of steal their thunder. <laughs> certainly that was not our intention, but it really did 
work out that way that literally for the next quarter century after we did that examination, perhaps longer, we did dominate the world of shroud research with the work that we had done. So, so I can, you know, my heart goes out to them. I can understand how they felt, but at the same time, our team was able to, over a period of five days and nights, nonstop, examine that piece of cloth and create the scientific database that exists in the peer-reviewed literature to this very day. Okay, before forms the, the basis for most shroud research to this day. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, which is going to take up most of the three hours, I want to go back to Barry. Who was Barry? So sure. you, you got through photographic school in a great place. Santa Barbara is a gorgeous place to go to school. Sure. How did you wind up on this team? Because, you know, it's one of those, uh, you know, Casablanca questions of all the gin sure. joints. I mean, they could have picked any photographer anywhere on the planet who would have crawled through shards of glass to do what you got to do. How come you got so lucky? Well, okay. Uh, I've got to step back then and let's talk. Um, operating the photographic studio that I did in Santa Barbara, we weren't a portrait and wedding studio. We were a commercial studio, did a lot of scientific, medical, and technical things. I worked for some very large medical companies, for large aerospace companies. So I, I got a reputation for being somewhat of a good technical photographer. And I was approached by a local company in Santa Barbara that happened to be a contractor to Los Alamos National Laboratories. And of course, everybody, well, maybe not everybody, but anybody with white hair like I have knows that Los Alamos is famous for developing, creating the first atomic bombs. So uh, I was hired as a consultant, a photographic consultant on a seven month project for Los Alamos. And I worked with a, a imaging scientist who also lived in Santa Barbara, Don Devan. And we finished the project over seven months. And I always tell people, you know, it was about atomic bombs. So it was classified. If I'd love to tell you. Oh, more, so you can't I tell us. Kill you. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> too many people. See now, so this. Hang on, hang on. Hang on. This. This is interesting because I would have thought, you know, as a layman coming at this from the outside, okay, they're putting a team together. Who are you going to call? You know, Ghostbusters. <clears throat> you go to the National. Sorry, National Geographic. They have incredible photographers. They've had them for decades and decades. You're telling me that you were in the right place working with a team at Los Alamos when the Shroud team was put together, which means we have to go back and you have to explain how did this team get put together? Whose idea was it? Who decided sure. to approach, you know, the King as opposed to the, the, the whole, let's really hit it because we got three hours and I've always wanted to ask the nitty gritty before we get okay. to the really, what in the world did you find? All right. So uh, I did this project for seven months. The project ended. A few weeks later, the phone rings, and it's my friend Don again, the gentleman I had just completed that project for. And his, and I, you know, when you're self-employed and the phone rings, you're, you're hoping it's the next job, obviously. Yep. So uh, he called me back. I'm expecting to hear maybe there's another project. And he says, no, no. He says, but what do you know about the Shroud of Turin? And I laughed. I said, but Don, I'm, I'm Jewish. And, and Don laughed. And he said, so am I, remember? Don was one of the other Jewish guys on the team. And he, he explained to me that a couple of scientists from Los Alamos went over to Sandia Labs, a sister lab, also a weapons explosives lab in Albuquerque. And they had a, an analog machine there that was, uh, had a black and white video camera and displayed an image on a green screen monitor, big one like an oscilloscope type display. This is in the late, late 70s, right? 
I'm sorry? This is in the late 70s? This was in about 1976, actually, is when this happened. Okay. So, and when I got that phone call. But what these guys had done was they took a photograph of the shroud that had been made in 1931, and they input it to this device, and it takes the lights and darks of the image and stretches them into vertical 3D space proportionate to each other. Oh. So a normal photograph would give you a jumble of shapes, but no, nothing coherent. But when they put an image of the shroud into it, it yielded the natural relief of a human form. Oh, my God. Well, that in itself was enough to get my interest up because being a photographer, I knew that I could not encode depth or spatial data into my photograph other than into a 2D space using light and shadow, but no distance information was being recorded. And so I understood immediately that this couldn't have been a photograph or an artwork because those items wouldn't have that kind of a property. So he said, so well, hang on, hang on. Are- so hang on. Did these guys at Sandia do this because they were just shroud fans? I mean, and for people who don't know what we're talking about, we may have to define what the shroud of Turin even is. Well, I'll do that in a sec, but let me answer that question first, that a couple of guys who were interested in the shroud and who were also over at Los Alamos, including my friend Don, who I'd worked with, who was an imaging scientist, heard about this piece of equipment that they had at Sandia, called up the guy who owned it and ran it, uh, Bill Mottern, and said, can we bring this over and look at it? And Bill said, sure, why not? So they went over and they did it, and that's how this whole uh, visualization of a property that some had projected that there was 3D information in the shroud as back as far back as the early 19, uh, 20th century, early 1900s, but this was the first time it had been visualized using a scientific instrument, showing that there was this depth or spatial or topographic information encoded in the shroud. So that became the catalyst for these guys deciding, let's see if we can get permission. Let's put a team together, see if we can go over and get permission to examine the shroud. Wow. That being said, let me step back now and answer the question, what the heck is the shroud? Mm -hmm. So that we're not leaving anybody behind. The Shroud of Turin is a 14 and a half foot long, three and a half foot wide sheet of ancient linen that bears the front and back ventral and dorsal complete image of the entire body of a man who's been scourged and beaten and speared and crucified and crowned with a crown or cap of thorns. All of the wounds on it ultimately were determined to be forensically accurate. All of the blood stains that it bears are forensically accurate. They're not applied with paint or pigment. So there are they're blood stains on the shroud itself. There are. And they've been tested and determined to be male human blood. So that piece of cloth, since it bears a very coincidental witness to exactly what the gospels say was done to Jesus of Nazareth, that's what leads people to believe this must be the shroud that covered his body when he was placed in the tomb. Now, I th- certainly was a skeptic. I'm, being Jewish, I, I had no emotional attachment, and I firmly expected that we would get to Italy and I'd whip out my 10X magnifier, which photographers always have, and I'd take one look and see the paint, and we'd be done. That mm. was 40, over 40 years ago. <laughs> so things didn't quite work out the way I thought they would. Be careful answering telephones, Barry. 
<laughs> well, you never know if it's the next job. That's what self-employed people have to do. So I didn't have much of a choice. But anyway, that, that's what the shroud is. And the reason that people believe that it's the burial shroud is because the Romans speared a lot of people and crucified a lot of people and scourged a lot of people. But to our knowledge, they didn't do all that to one man except once. And that man had the unique experience of being crowned with this nasty thorn bush because he had proclaimed himself the king of the Jews. Mm. So to humiliate him further, they said, oh, you're the king, eh? Well, here's your crown. And it wasn't a pretty little circlet the way artists have depicted Jesus over the years throughout art. You know, artists have artistic license. An artistic license has forced artists over the centuries when they depict Jesus, whether it be on the cross or, or anywhere else, uh, you know, being tortured. He's always got a modesty cloth covering his private area. But in reality, the man of the shroud was naked, as was Jesus when they put him on that cross. So right off the bat, what's on the shroud goes against all conventional artworks that have ever been done that never showed Jesus naked, but the man of the shroud is. So there were a lot of there, those are the main reasons why people believe that this piece of cloth must be the burial shroud of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, the next obvious question is: This wasn't kicking around two thousand years ago. It appears in the historical record a lot later. When does it first appear, and what's its, as they would say in the legal profession, provenance? How do we track who had it, well, when they had it, all that good stuff that legal guys would love sure. to know? First thing is, it's mentioned in the Gospels. So we know that when the tomb was open that Sunday morning, body was gone. They reported that there was the shroud, his burial shroud, and some linen strips that would have been used to wrap the cloth to his body so it wouldn't fall off of him. And a second cloth folded and separate from the other. Now, I'm an Old Testament guy, obviously being Jewish, but when I read the New Testament and I read that description of what was in the tomb and I heard about the second cloth folded and separate from the other, that immediately told me this is an authentic Jewish burial because Jews, oh. unlike Christians and Muslims, value blood so highly that any blood-soaked clothing must be buried with the body. And that second cloth folded and separate mentioned in the Gospels would have been the face cloth. You know, we still cover the face of the dead. You know, at the side of the road, what do we do if there's an accident? We cover their face. Right. They did it then. They do it now. They've probably been doing it as long as humans have been on this planet. So they covered his face it, and used that to carry him to the tomb with. His blood and pleural fluids from his lungs would have been on that cloth. And so Jewish law would require that second cloth be buried with the body. And that's why it's mentioned in the Gospels. It was there. Mm. Important so detail. Those are the reasons. I'm sorry? An important detail. An important detail. Now, it does not bear an image because it would have been removed from the body once he was in the tomb and laid into the tomb. They would have taken that off, set it aside for later burial with the body, and then begun to prepare him and wrap him into the burial shroud. So it was not on his body when he was wrapped in the shroud in the image form. There would be no facial image on the shroud. It would be on the sudarium. And that's what the other cloth is called. The Sudarium, it's called the Sudarium of Oviedo because it still exists, and it's in Oviedo, Spain, in the cathedral there. And I've been fortunate to actually uh, be given the opportunity to see it when I was uh, there in Spain. Oh, my so, God. No, wait, wait. This, the, this second, the this second cloth reported in the New Testament that there was in the tomb three days after he was you know, murdered, that still exists and is a relic in some cathedral somewhere? 
correct. And because the blood, if you were to superimpose the blood stains and markings on the sudarium over the image of the face of the shroud, they line up perfectly. And some of the blood stains on the back of the head of the man of the shroud are the same shape as the blood stains on the sudarium. So there's a very good likelihood they both wrap the same body. And consequently, on shroud.com, although we focus specifically on the shroud itself, there's considerable information about the sidarium because there is apparently a connection between those two claws. Okay, I was going to hold this question until later when we got into the real forensics of this incredible investigation. Mean, I remember watching this live on NBC on television, sitting there in Berkeley. I mean, this was, this was major, major cat's meow news that you guys were able to basically get in there and do modern science on something so important to so many, so many hundreds of millions, billion people. I mean, really. So let's, here's the question. Did you get DNA from the shroud? And has anybody been able to get DNA from this second piece of cloth? And have they done a match? Okay, so let's start with DNA first. Um, there was a DNA analysis done of the blood of the shroud in 1995, University of Texas Health Science Center by Dr. Victor Tryon, who was a DNA expert. They were able to determine male, human, with normal chromosomes, but far too degraded for any kind of a profile to be obtained. Mm. So technically, to answer your question, you're right. DNA is a comparative analysis, but you have to have a complete profile on both sides of the analysis for mm. it to be viable. Now, if the blood, and they've tested the blood on the sidereum, both bloods type to type AB, so there is that consistency but no real DNA matching has been able to be done. And there's another reason for that. The shroud over the century has been handled by literally thousands of people, including oh every my. one of our team members. Oh my God. Myself. The cacophony so of DNA. <laughs> yeah. But to 2008, we realized that because we're shedding our epithelial cells constantly, mm. if you leaned over the shroud, you've left your DNA on it. Well, I happen to be a long-haired Jewish guy, and my DNA oh, is all over that clot, too. Wow. So we have two problems. One is what's there is old and degraded, and we don't really have much to compare it to because we can't get a complete profile. And B, contamination is such an issue that anyone who's kissed it, prayed over it, repaired it, rolled it up and put it away when they used to roll it up on a dowel and put it in a chest in the uh, altar of, uh, of the Guarini Chapel adjoining the cathedral in Turin. All of that, everybody has left their DNA all over it. So because of that, and because it's very difficult to make sure that what you're testing is actually of the man of the shroud and not the many thousands of people who've come in contact with it over the centuries, uh, DNA may not be as viable a test as we'd like to think. You know, we all watch it on TV, and within 43 minutes, they've solved the crime <laughs> <using> DNA. <laughs> yep. It, it's only 43 minutes because of commercial breaks, you know. So, uh, so it doesn't take long on television to get the crime solved. Yeah. But in reality, uh, there are limitations to even DNA analysis. And unfortunately, with the shroud, um, it doesn't look like it would be a very practical uh, test to perform. However, uh, there's a new blood expert who happens to now be on our board of directors, a man named Kelly Kearse, K-E-A-R-S-E. -E. Kelly's a DNA and blood expert, and he came up with a brilliant idea. Since the blood stains soak through the cloth, 
and there's been a backing sheet sewn onto the shroud for centuries to repair it from a, a fire that damaged it in 1532. They sewed a backing sheet onto it in 1534. He suggested removing the backing sheet and extracting a sample from the reverse oh, side. Oh, what a cool idea. In, yeah. Because I was thinking covered. of getting down in the threads, you know, of the cloth because it's soaked through. I was thinking they can do it now with accelerators where even a, a microgram is, is useful. I'll tell you what, we're, at, we're at the bottom of the hour. Time goes by very fast on the show. Hold it there. My guest this morning is Barry Schwartz. He was the head documentarian, chief photographer, with a remarkable personal story of how he got to be on the team, the first team that actually was able to subject the Shroud of Turin, which is not owned by the Vatican. It's privately owned, and the guy who owned it, the king, is now lineal descendant, of the family for 500 years, which has owned the shroud, gave permission in 1978. I'm not going to miss a stitch on this. Oh, that was a terrible pun. Because I want to track through how this team decided to go for the gold and to see if they could actually get access. To me, access to artifacts, rare, incredibly important artifacts, is kind of the hallmark of this show. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Okay, Richard, back here. Let me get uh, a little serious and talk to you one-on-one -on -one for a moment here. We have just opened up a new window on the homepage of the other side of Midnight. If you go over to the left-hand side, and I have to move something out of the way so I can see it, at the very top on the left-hand side under tonight's show, it says, Donate Now! Exclamation point. There's a reason we're doing this. This show, as you know, has sponsored many other scientific endeavors. The M-Drive, we raise money for... Uh, uh, some friends in Ohio to create one of those. We raised money for another project in Italy to create an alternative M-Drive technology. Um, and what we're trying to do now is raise money for ourselves for several projects that this the show itself is not even keeping pace with the, the funds required to keep the show on the air. So we need additional funding to do some other things. Let me give you one very blatant, blunt truth. My Accutron broke. I've used it for years. I made a mistake the other day. I dropped the damn thing on a hardwood floor. It obviously has incredible fine wires. It broke. To send it out to specialists who do Accutron reconstruction, surgery, whatever, is going to require several hundred dollars. To get a new one is going to require something like a thousand bucks. So we need funds because what I want to do is I want to put the Accutron inside one of Jim DeMeo's Oregon accumulator boxes and or blankets. And our prediction is because this is a technology invented by William Reich, which somehow entraps and slows down and enmeshes the ether, the torsion field, the Accutron readings will be different inside the accumulator and inside the blanket as opposed to just sitting naked in the air. 
problem is I don't have a working Anchitron at the moment, and I need funds from you guys, whoever wants to support this scientific research. And the reason this is important is because the orgone technology could be very, very useful in combating cancer. And you know on this show that there are certain people near and dear to us who have cancer. And this has resisted all other treatments. I'd like to try the orgone approach. I'd like to try it with the technology having measured the difference in the etheric density, the frequency, the resonant response, whatever you want to call it with the Accutron to demonstrate that something really unusual is going on inside this multi-layered, you know, steel, um, wool, and ordinary sheep's wool sandwich that you create to wrap the patient in. But I can't do that without an Accutron. And that requires funds. So that donate button over on the left-hand side, that's really important to not only maintain this show, but also to maintain some of the specific scientific endeavors we're trying to do with this show. Now, the other thing we're trying to do is to do a television series. As you know, we've been in discussion uh, for a couple of months now with two networks regarding television. And as soon as they saw what I wanted to do, it was like, Richard, who? Do we know you? This has happened many times over the years with this research before. So we need to raise funds to do professional, modern, mainstream television production. Now, it didn't used to be as cheap to do as it is now because there's all kinds of tools available off the shelf from software to cameras to hardware to cabling to communications to the Internet to coding of files and all that that make it really possible to do on a veritable shoestring what used to require a crew of thousands and you know millions of dollars. We're not in that ballpark. We're in the tens of thousands of dollars range, but it still is a significant chunk of change, which we don't have. So again, if you're a devotee of what we're trying to do, if you understand what our research has been about over the last you know, 10, 20, 30 years, if you'd like to see breakthroughs on the mainstream front, the quickest way, as my old friend Gene Roddenberry used to say is, but Dick, if this is real, it'll be on television. So following Gene's dictum, we're trying to put this on television and we need you to help us put it on television. So with that, um, all I can say is whatever you can spare, we will definitely appreciate immensely because it moves the ball forward. Thank you. And now back to the show. And we are back on the other side of midnight with my guest this morning. I must say, Barry, you were everything I hoped you would be. You've got all the nitty-gritty details that I've always wanted to ask and never knew how to ask about this incredibly historic investigation after literally hundreds of years. You and your team got your paws on this thing, the Shroud of Turin. And so let's get into the nitty-gritty. Um, what did you find and how did you start? You know, you, there's a couple of guys okay. at uh, well, Los Alamos who want to do this. They got to put together a team. There's logistics. There's funding. There's equipment. There's all kinds of regulations, uh, I guess, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, getting in and out of Italy with equipment is, 
not easy. So start at the beginning and don't spare us the details. Okay. All right. Well, then let me start by adding one thing to what we've discussed already, and that is the ownership of the shroud. Because in 1983, King Umberto II died. And instead of leaving it to one of his heirs, which had been typical in the Savoy family for nearly 600 years, he decided that he wanted to leave it to someone else. He thought about leaving it to the church as an institution, but he realized it would take about 130 cardinals to vote on something to do something with the shroud. He didn't feel that was efficient, so he decided to leave it to the living pope. And in 1985, after the will was probated, uh, the ownership, the legal ownership of the shroud came to be to the living pope. That no, wait, wait. When you say the pope, do you mean the Vatican or the pope himself as a person? The pope himself, the Holy See, the pope himself as a person. So the legal owner at that moment in history was John Paul II, and of course it then passed from him to uh, Pope Benedict and now to Pope Francis. So Pope Francis today is the legal owner of the Shroud of Turin. So I wanted to kind of bring us right up to date in that part. See, of it. that's why I now, thought it was the Vatican I, in the beginning, because I didn't think it was anything but. And I'm obviously one of millions of people who don't know this, and that would be a natural assumption. It would, and that's the reason I thought it important to Very. sort of finish that part of the story before we continue. Now, uh, as far as our team goes, uh, it started off with a handful of guys, the guys who started and asked me if I wanted to be involved. And, of course, when Don... And you said, is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think he is, actually. Um, When I was asked to be involved, uh, he he said, look, these guys are going to put a team together. The first thing they said they'd need is a photographer, since you and I had worked together for seven months and you're technically competent. Would you like to be on the team? And I said, no. What? What? I said, no. Yeah. And I I really uh, felt uncomfortable with getting involved with something that I knew very little about. And so I said, no. So he said, look, let me give you some literature. Let me stop you there. Let me stop you. Was this a no from a religious perspective? Are you a religious Jew or are you, I mean, I know a lot of Jews and some are religious. Not at all. Okay. No, I just didn't didn't feel that I was qualified necessarily to get involved with something like this. And I was a little apprehensive because I didn't know much about the subject matter. So I said, no. So he said, let me give you some literature. And he brought me about a foot high pile of literature that were mostly religious tracts from the Holy Shroud Guild, a group of four priests in Esopus, New York, who were promoting the shroud in the U.S. starting in the 50s. So it didn't help one bit (laughs) because it was exactly (laughs) what I didn't want to get involved in. Um, but there was no science about the shroud. There were a few books written in the 30s and, and some papers written earlier than that, but there wasn't any real science. Our team effectively was the first scientific examination and the last, unfortunately. Nobody's done it since. So our team began to grow, and it didn't grow by somebody making a list and going down the list to find out who might want to be on it. Somebody said, look, like my friend Don said, well, I know this photographer, let me call him. Somebody said, we need a chemist. Some One of the other members said, look, I know this guy at Los Alamos, Ray Rogers. He's a thermochemist. He's brilliant, and he's got archaeological background. Mm. Uh, let's call him. And one, So it was basically uh, a team of who do you know? It was a team of who do you know that met the qualifications, mm. that had the skill set necessary 
to perform the kind of non-destructive tests that would be required. Obviously, we couldn't go in there and cause any harm to the cloth. So everything we did had to be non-destructive. And so people recommended other researchers and scientists that they knew that were qualified or had the right set of qualifications to participate in this type of research. Sounds almost uh, like months. NASA's criteria for picking astronauts. You want your crews to have multidisciplinary backgrounds. So if one guy Correct. can't do it, you know, was ill that day, has a stomach ache or has, you know, appendicitis, somebody else can fill in if you've got a limited amount of win window time to do something. Right. Some overlap there in, in having skill sets that are broad enough to participate and maybe one guy helping a guy on a different experiment because he has some skills along those lines as mm. well. But anyway, as the team grew, two gentlemen were added, and you just mentioned NASA, two gentlemen were added from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, Don Lin and Jean Lore. Don Lin had the distinction of being director of imaging on the Voyager, Viking, Mariner, and Galileo probe. Oh, my so God. He, Wow. Yeah, so he was instantly my hero <laughs> on that team. This is a NASA imaging scientist, and I'm a technical photographer. I don't think you can get any better than that. Nope. And so Don Lynn, and, and so he joined our team, that, and we were having a meeting one day in Santa Barbara, and I was again feeling, because I ultimately agreed to go on the team, but I'm going to be candid, even though I know a lot of people are listening, I was really thinking free trip to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> so I was not very deep in my emotional response to this. I was just looking at it as, well, maybe I should go ahead and get a free trip to Italy out of the deal. But a few months later, I was again feeling that same uneasiness. And I mentioned to Don Lynn, the guy from Jet Propulsion Lab, who happened to be Catholic. Um, I said, gee, Don, what's a nice Jewish boy like me doing on this team? And he, he, he looked at me and he said, well, apparently you've forgotten that the man in question is a Jew. <laughs> I said, no. I, I, that was the one thing I knew about Jesus, that he was one of our boys. And so I, I said, no, I knew that. And he, he looked at me and said, so you don't think God would want one of his chosen people on our team? And then I laughed. I said, no, I never thought that. Hmm. And he said, listen, go to Turin. Stop complaining. Do the best job you can do. God doesn't tell us in advance what the plan is, but one day you'll know. And those words kept me on that team. Now, it's 40-some years later. It's almost, what, 41, 42 years later since that conversation occurred. And in retrospect, I look back and I realize that that was, I think that was God speaking to me through my friend's voice because look at where my life has led. I mean, I never expected to spend the latter part of my life dedicated to educating people about the Shroud of Turin. If anybody had asked me that that would be the case, I would have laughed in their face. And so now I'm working on a book to sort of tell this story, and the name of the book is "This Was Not My Idea." <laughs> <laughs> okay, That's what I'm going to call it. Okay, so let's for those again who have not followed this history, like most of us, how how was how did you get complete with the team, and how did you get the equipment? How did you get funding? How did you get transportation? Sure. How did you get through customs? Okay, well, all good questions, starting with. First of all, we spent 17 months after the team sort of came together. We worked in regional groups. I was in the California group. There was a group here in Colorado, a group in New Mexico, of course, and a group back east of New England. Okay, before we get into that, before we get into that, let's, get, let's give a listing of the disciplines that are required, because I think most people 
who don't know science don't understand how multidisciplinary this team was, how the overlapping specialties, the overlapping inquiries were, were so important to getting a complete picture of this object, this relic. Absolutely. Well, there were a group of uh, four or five of us that were involved in photography and imaging. Uh, and that included uh, the two guys from Jet Propulsion Laboratories and Don Devan, the guy I did the atomic bomb thing with. Um, so there were, I guess, cunning the photographers and those guys. There were about eight of us that were in the imaging side. There were guys who were responsible for thermal imaging or infrared imaging. There were spectral experts. And we had on our team the, the husband and wife who owned the company that made the best spectral instruments in the world at that moment in time the Oriel Corporation. And so we had their finest instruments. We had chemists, we had physicists, we had forensic experts. We had Dr. Robert Bucklin on our team, who's the guy they based the TV show Quincy on, and he was a consultant mm. to that program. Um, and Bob Bucklin was our forensic expert. We had a gentleman from the LA Museum who was a, a more of a historical art historian kind of person, although he didn't attend the examination in Turin, a lot of these guys, uh, the only guys who went over to Turin were the ones necessary for collecting the data. Once we completed our five days and nights of data collection, we came back to the U.S. and spent the next three years reducing the data, writing it into papers, submitting it to peer-reviewed scientific journals. This was before the internet, so these were the really the high-end journals, applied optics and uh, IEEE journals that uh, I think listeners will know are highly respected to this day. Um, there, were, there were no online open access journals like we have today, mm. which aren't technically really peer reviewed. I mean, there's academia where you can just post your own papers if you want to. So uh, there's a lot of uh, changes over the sense of this last uh, 40 years because of the advent of the internet. But you know, that's a double-edged sword. There's uh, some problems with that. But it also enabled me in 1996 to put Shroud.com online. And even how that occurred was kind of a funny story. I got a phone call from a friend who said, you know that Shroud thing you're involved with? I said, yeah, I know that Shroud thing I'm involved with. <laughs> he says, well, it turns out that that's just a photo made by Leonardo da Vinci. And I, I laughed. I thought he was joking. And, mm. and he was serious. He says, no, no, I'm serious. And I said, where did you get that information? And he said, well, my wife and I were checking out at the grocery store. Oh, no. And they saw And they the read tabloid. this huge, you know, esteemed peer-reviewed journal called the National Enquirer. Enquirer, exactly. And I, I had this epiphany at that moment. I realized here I am, an insider, a member of the team, full access to all the data. But the general public, especially in those days, had no access to these kinds of peer-reviewed journals unless they had access to a research library, university library or something. Sure. And so, you know, here I am just sort of taking for granted the access that I had. And I realized at that moment that the public doesn't have that access, but I had already been on the internet for about a year starting in, in late 94, early 95. So while I'm talking to the guy on my desk was a manila folder and I wrote four words, consider building a website. That was the genesis of Shroud.com. It was his phone call making me realize that, hey, the public doesn't have any access to this, and they deserve it. Look, I, I felt privileged to be in that room 
when maybe a billion or more people on this planet had more right to be there than me, yet I was the guy there, and my job was to document the event, and it occurred to me that my job wasn't over, and that I needed to collect all this data, which I'd already been collecting anyway, <clears throat> and make it available on a website, and I built shroud.com that went online January 21st, 1996. People make a big issue about our being number one on Google, and I don't mean a paid number one. I mean really number one on Google. You can check me on that. Check Shroud of Turin on Google. You'll see we're at the top. And I always have to point out that I think we're about a year older than Google. So <laughs> <laughs> we've been there a while. And the website is huge. I had to finally put a search engine on it that searches only within Shroud.com because I could no longer find articles that I had put there. I knew they were there somewhere, mm. but I couldn't find them. It got so big. So we now have an internal search engine that will help you find anything. It's about 175,000 words in the index. So people should be able to find just about anything they're looking at if they know how to use a search engine. God, I have so many questions and so little time. So let's go back to this kind of linear narrative because I think that's the best way people can, can get sure. hold of this. You probably have, what, 25, 30 people on this team? And tons there were 24 of, of us that went over there Okay. and about 32 that were on the team, some of the guys who were not necessary for collecting the data, but only for evaluating it, didn't, we didn't need to buy them a plane ticket and 19 days of hotel rooms hmm. because money was an issue and you asked about how we were funded. Yes. And so the way we were funded was, first of all, we were all volunteers. We, none of us were paid for our time. So that was something we volunteered ourselves. But the cost of shipping equipment over, we had 80 wooden crates of equipment. It must have been uh, tons and tens of tons of stuff to send in. Tons of equipment, literally. Uh, we had to ship that over. We had to put up 24 guys in hotel rooms for 19 days. We had to buy airline tickets for 24 guys, round-trip tickets. And a lot of the money was underwritten by – a lot of the costs were underwritten by – uh, Harry John, a man who was an heir to the Miller Brewing fortune. And uh, so he put up a lot of the lion's share of that money that it took to get us there. Ironically, um, I had to go to my banker and borrow a thousand bucks. I'd have some money, you know, in pocket uh, because my business was, you know, seven or eight years old and didn't have a lot of money, cash, extra cash lying around. And it, uh, maybe the funniest conversation I had was talking to the banker, trying to explain <laughs> to him this is before we did what we did. Uh, what the Shroud of Turin was. Oh, my the God. The fact that I was going to be on this team. And the, I got a blank stare from him. And in the end, he just smiled. He said, well, I don't know about any of that, but I'll loan you a thousand bucks. And back in those <laughs> so days, a thousand bucks money, was real money. I had no clue what I was talking about. Wow. Really. So, so that was uh, to answer your question about the funding. Uh, National Geographic uh, gave us about $2,500. And... Uh, well, wait, wait. I, uh, Nat Geo gave you a lousy 2500 Well, in 1978, that wasn't quite as lousy as it might be today. Yeah, but I'm thinking that this must have cost upwards of a hundred grand to do all this. Uh, probably more than that. I, I, you know, I don't know the accurate figures on that. Remember, I was the documenting photographer sort of at the bottom of that totem pole. I was not one of the administrative guys. I was not one of the team leaders. So, um, so I didn't have you know, access to the information of how much it cost to do it all. And there was but no was crowdsourcing, probably, any capability of getting the public to help. None of, none of that existed at the time. So this so really we, was we a, almost a miracle 
to go investigate a maybe miracle? Uh, well, I've had people say that, that it was, and uh, I wouldn't argue the point. Okay, so you all get on the plane, you're headed to Italy. What happens? Give us a day-by-day, day what happened, or hour-by-hour, hour, so, actually. We all get on the plane, and we uh, get over to Italy, and we get off the plane in Milan, and the first bit of news we're given is, all of your equipment has been seized by Italian customs, of course. and they refuse to release of it. Of course, of course, of course. Murphy, Murphy. <laughs> Obviously, Richard, you've been to Italy. Yes, <laughs> yes. All I can say. Yeah, and so we had arrived in Turin a week early. The shroud was on public display at the time. It was brought out to commemorate its 400th anniversary in Turin. 1578 is when it arrived in Turin, 1978 being its 400th anniversary. So it was put on public display for the first time in 31 years or so, uh, or 30, 35 years, whatever it was. Um, and we got there a week ahead of schedule, uh, ahead of the end of the public display. So we got to unpack the equipment and get it set up and calibrated and ready so that when the shroud was brought to us, we'd be ready to go. Well, that didn't work out so well because one of the pieces of equipment we'd sent was a low power x-ray machine, mm. a very low power x-ray, not a huge big one like that you see in doctor's offices, but a reasonably small instrument. But the outside of the crate had a radiation sticker on it. Oh, my God. I know what happened. That put the fear of God into the oh, yes. Italian customs people. And because of that, they seized it all. <laughs> well, it turns out that one of, that one of the four priests that were in the Holy Shroud Guild that I mentioned earlier that were promoting the shroud here in the U.S. Back in New York. Uh, was, yeah. Was born in Turin. He was Turinese, as they say. Um, He'd been an altar boy in the Turin Cathedral in 1931 when the shroud was displayed. He became a priest. Uh, not that unusual. There's a, there's a, uh, uh, in his family is a saint. So, uh, you know, the, it's obviously an Italian family with lots of priests. Father Peter Rinaldi is the man. And so on the fifth day, Father Peter said, I will go to the customs office and I will get the equipment out. Now, unbeknownst to most of us at the time, the Archdiocese of Turin put up the, the cathedral as uh, collateral. What? For the, yeah. He put up the deed to the cathedral as collateral, but, but that wasn't the final straw. It was Father Peter Rinaldi going into the customs office and asking for the man in charge. The guy came out, and Father Peter was a very tall man with a very imposing voice, and he said – In full cassock, et cetera, of course. Yeah, so he said, what, what is your name, sir, to the guy in charge? And the, now the guy is suspicious. He's, well, why do you want my name, Father? And Father Peter said, there's about to be an international incident, and I'd like to give you credit. <laughs> and then he slipped him 100,000 lira. And the equipment was immediately released. Now, wow. when I say 100,000 lira, it sounds like a lot of money. Yep. 80 bucks. <sighs> okay. So we're not, but you know, Father Peter knew how to grease the skids and get things accomplished in Turin. Wow. That and the fact that the archdiocese supported us by putting up the deed to the, the cathedral. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So ultimately the equipment was released a day and a half before we would be given the shroud. Thank God. So we didn't sleep for that day and a half. We had to get everything. We had to unload. And by the way, they loaded it all onto a dump truck. And I think that's one of the images that's on the page that I sent to you that you put up on the screen up there. 
you can take a look at our <laughs> oh it's there yes it's number two Cynthia put up there's a whole yeah. bunch of stuff so let me tell you folks how to get there you go to the other side of midnight.com you click on the banner for tonight's show which is that shroud close-up of the head of the shroud of turin that takes you to the guest page to barry's page scroll down you'll see barry schwartz's items and number one is i guess where the shroud was That's on the- display that's the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist, where the shroud is both stored and publicly displayed. And that was during the still going on public, uh, public display of the shroud. And there were about 100,000 people waiting in a long line there to get two minutes in front of the shroud. Oh, my. And number two have- is a dump truck image of the dump truck, yeah. which held all your equipment that was delivered to the Royal Palace. That's correct. So as you can see, we then had to unpack the truck, load all the equipment in, unpack all the crates, set up and calibrate all the instruments. And instead of doing it in a week, which was what we felt it was going to take to do it properly, we had to do it in a rush in a day and a half. Hmm. But Sounds we did. like we a NASA project. Hmm. We just didn't sleep. That's all. Wow. <laughs> you know, we stayed up and just kept working. So that brought us to the point where we were then getting our equipment up okay hold on hold on hold on we only have a minute till the break so let me ask you this question the historical question when did the shroud first appear in history well it first appears in the gospels it's mentioned in the new i mean i meant physically physically. i know you meant afterwards but i had to start with that because it, it is mentioned in the gospels um we don't see any evidence of the shroud until about 285 AD in the Domitia Catacombs in Rome, where the first depiction of Jesus with the long flowing split beard, like what we see on the shroud, is in a fresco in that catacomb. So that means for about 250 years, that piece of cloth was hidden. And there's a valid reason for them not to have come running out of the tomb and saying, look what we found. And if you want, we can pick it up right from there. We'll pick it up right the there. Okay, so hold it there. My guest this morning is Barry Schwartz, who was the chief documentarian, meaning photographer, good old analog photography. I'm going to get into the conversation, you know, digital versus ectochrome, that kind of thing. But we'll do that when we come back from the break. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return to the story of what may be the burial shroud of Jesus of Nazareth on this Easter Resurrection Weekend. Don't go away. Hi there. This is Kinthea, producer for The Other Side of Midnight. It often happens that I receive email from listeners. I don't see the ruins in that photo. How do you see it? So, we decided to put together a workshop for our Club 19.5 members only. In this workshop, we're going to go over how to look at that NASA photo and see what's actually there. An artistic analysis of ancient ruins. Please join Richard C. Hoagland, Ken Johnson, Keith Laney, Andrew Curry, myself, and other citizen experts as we explore this topic together. And I invite you to go to theothersideofmidnight.com 
click on the workshop link and send us your suggestions of what you would like us to cover in this workshop or other workshops. We'll keep you posted. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire Bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>